0: Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Our Father, we thank you that your Son is indeed the source of living water. Thank you that he said the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal, but you have come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Thank you that the fulfillment of the new covenant enacted through his blood allowed us to become temples of the living God. Thank you that just as he promised, you would place your spirit in us that we might walk in your statutes and that we might all know you from the least to the greatest. Thank you that you're not a respecter of persons that whosoever will may come. And thank you, our Father, that when you save us, you commit yourself to shaping Christ's image in us. Thank you for your word, a lamp onto our feet and a light to our path. Thank you for its power, not only to bring about a second birth, but to grow us like newborn babes. And so today we come and we hunger for the truth that is found. Help us not to be guilty of those that James says that only hear the word but are not doers. Help us because of our exposure to the scripture today to make decisions, to commit ourselves, to follow more passionately and more closely the one who gave everything for us. We pray in this fresh week a brand new week that begins today, that you would use us in the fulfillment of the great commandment to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to follow through in the great commission. Give us opportunity this week, in and around town, wherever we may be, even if we're in another country of the world. Give us opportunity to share the gospel with someone, to point someone to the Lord Jesus in whatever expression you would give us. Now, Father, I thank you for your spirit who is my helper. I ask for his help today, for his anointing, that he would fill me and use me, that Christ, our living water, might be lifted up. And I ask it in his holy name. Amen. Take your Bibles, would you, and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 16, 16. You can see this morning's topic is Armageddon in the seventh bowl. Now, it has been actually two months since we've been in the Revelation. So we're going to review and try to bring everyone back to where we were. But when you come into the 16th chapter, it becomes obvious that there is a dramatic change that is taking place on the earth. The patience of God, the long-suffering of God has been worn thin. King David once wrote, the Lord is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And then he warned that he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. And you see the anger of God beginning in a new way to be unleashed. And this is just a precursor to what will follow in God's eternal wrath. God has been getting the earth's attention like a rheostat that he's turning up in heaven. First come the sealed judgments that come as a warning of God's wrath. Then come the trumpet judgments in which there's an intensification of God's wrath. And finally, today, we will finish the bold judgments where we see God's wrath completed. So the dam of God's mercy... Has broken to his wrath and now in the fullest expression. And the only worse expression than what you read here in the 16th chapter is the lake of fire itself. Now, if you are here, there's good news for you. If you know Christ is your Savior, you will not be here for this time frame called the Great Tribulation. This is the 70th week of a prophecy that Daniel made back in the ninth chapter. And if you don't know what that prophecy is, you might want to download searchthescriptures.org, the phone app, and listen to the three messages on the prophet Daniel from the ninth chapter, because there you find the schematic for the whole book of the Revelation. It will really open it up to you. But if you remember... Daniel himself, when he comes to the end of the book, when he describes this coming time that we are studying, he said there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. He is saying that what we are reading today here in the Revelation that he prophesied of is the worst time the world will ever, ever know. Now, if you remember in the fourth chapter, God opened up a door and the church is raptured. God's church is caught up, and so after chapter 4, we will not see the church again until she comes back with the Lord Jesus as part of his mighty armies. They're in the 19th chapter, but in chapter 6, almost all the way through 19, you see this expression of the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I want to review by first reading the chapter. Again, it's been two months since we've been here. So follow along in your Bible. If you don't have a paper edition, you should get one. If you come to meet the pastor, you'll be given one. But you need to get a paper copy because you can write things in the margin and learn your way around if you just put it on a tablet. And I'm not against tablets. I've been using them since the 1980s. That is computer Bibles. I tested one of the very first computer Bibles ever published, me and 40 other guys, I'm not against them, but you will not learn your Bible without a physical copy, and that is what God will use to help you to disciple others. All right, let's begin by reading Revelation, the 16th chapter. Follow along. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth. And it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory." Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Then picking up where we left off in verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Hamageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, because its plague was extremely severe. Now, when you come to the 16th chapter, you come to one of the most frightening chapters in all of the Bible. Nonetheless, if you understand this chapter, it is a blessing, because we are told at the start of the Revelation, in the opening verses, that all who read and heed this prophecy called the book of Revelation will be blessed. And so there's great blessing if you have eyes to see it. Here in the 16th chapter, this world that had been ruined by man, that has been run by Satan, is now about to be rescued by God Almighty. Turn back a page in your Bible to chapter 15 and verse 1. There we read, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, Which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. That is, in these seven bowls of the wrath of God, also referred to as seven plagues, when these are done, basically it's over. Now, obviously, the second coming doesn't happen until the 19th chapter. And so there are some intervening chapters in 17 and 18 that will show us what has been taking place, especially during the second half of this seven years. Now, don't ever forget that the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, added almost a thousand years after the Bible was completed. And so, the very last verse, if you look at the last verse of chapter 15, Chapter 15 serves as an introduction. It's the shortest chapter in all the Revelation. The last verse of chapter 15 says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. This verse describes God the Father as being in his temple, We've learned already from Revelation and other comparative texts that there is a literal, actual, physical temple in heaven. The one on earth, Moses was told, was to mimic the one that God had in heaven when he built the tabernacle. And here in the heavenly temple, it's filled with the Shekinah, the first temple, the first tabernacle, was also filled with the Shekinah. And on this occasion, the whole temple is filled with the Shekinah glory of God. It's filled with smoke. It's as if God the Father were saying, stay out, I am busy. Do not interrupt me. I am going to interrupt and judge this world. And no one, the Bible says, was able to enter the temple Then we're told here, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels. And so these seven angels are told specifically, notice, go and pour out on the earth seven bowls of the wrath of God. And please note that these bowls are not dripped, they are poured They come intensely, and they come quickly, and they come without any delay. And they come in successive order, as did the seal in trumpet judgments, not all at once. Notice the specific aim of the first bowl, verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore in the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image. It's a sore sore. Some translations render it in abscess. One translation says a festering sore. Another with three words says an ugly and painful sore. The HCSB says a painful and severe sore. It's just awful. And the Latin translation of the Bible that the church used for a thousand years, the word that's translated here gives us our word ulcer. But it doesn't even begin to compare it to an ulcer, though I've never had one. This is an incredible sore that just will not heal. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word used when God put sores on the magicians of Egypt. A loathsome, a malignant sore, on who? On the people who had the mark of the beast. Those are unbelievers and who worshiped his image. And there's no cream, there's no medicine, there's no salve, no pill that can give relief to these boils as they were. And God puts on the outside, in the physical realm, a picture of what's really going on on the inside, very often the outside. The physical body expresses problems on the inside, not always, but often. And these men, their hearts are corrupt. They are wicked. They are dead set against God Almighty. Now, notice in verse 3, the second bowl of God's wrath, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Now remember, 21 judgments. Jesus likened this seven-year period to a woman in labor. A woman in labor, her labor pains increase in frequency and in intensity. If you remember in the second trumpet, one-third of the oceans were affected. And in this second bowl, all of the waters of the world are infected with a putrid, awful, blood-of-a-corpse kind of water. It's just terrible. And it causes all of the sea life to die. Some months back in the last year, we had a hurricane that hit North Carolina, and thousands upon thousands of fish all were washed up and large porpoises, and the stench was absolutely foul, and they wore masks to clear the streets. Listen, 70% of this planet is covered with water, and God says in this particular bowl, every living thing will die. People will not even have an an, an opportunity to eat the great fish. Millions will face starvation, verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, And they became blood. Now, again, in Revelation 8 and verse 10, we saw in miniature a third of the fresh waters were infected. Here, all of the fresh waters, every well, every spring, every river, every lake, like the seas, have been turned to blood. There's nothing to drink, and it will be a short time before all the bottled water on the planet is literally gone. And again, these come very, very fast in a short, short period of time. This is a global judgment, and God is getting ready to put the final nail in the coffin. It's awful what is happening. Now, people will see this and read this, and they say, how can a God of love do such a thing? How can he be fair? Now, remember, God is a God of love, but he's a God of justice. He's a God of wrath. And sometimes people express and emphasize the love of God to the exclusion of his justice, or they emphasize his wrath to the exclusion of his love. And if you take one truth and you make it all of the truth, then it becomes an untruth. And so God gives balance. And here God has two of his angels to step up, anticipating the questions that people would ask. And it reminds them that this is a just expression. Look at the first angel in verses 5 and 6. And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. God's not unjust. Just the opposite is true. Righteous are you who were and who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judge these things. And to further elaborate on his righteousness, for they, these who took the mark of the beast, the unbelievers, poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. They had slaughtered millions and millions of tribulation saints, Jews and Gentiles alike. They slaughtered the saints. That, of course, is a reference to all the believers during the time of the Great Tribulation. And they slaughtered the prophets. The word prophet would be comparable today to a pastor. All the preachers, all those preaching the Word of God— Their bloodthirsty forces had now come back to haunt them. They have reaped what they have sown. You like blood? God gave them blood to drink. And again, unless Jesus said those days had been cut short, no life would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God intervenes because if he let it run its course, everyone on planet earth would literally die and the believers who come to faith during the tribulation would not be able to enter the kingdom that we're going to study in chapter 20. Verse 5, righteous are you, who are and who were, O holy One, because you judge these things, for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. This is divine retribution. Now the first miracle when Jesus turned the water into the wine, it was to draw men to himself. But here, when He turns the water into blood, it's to remind men of His justice, of His righteousness that they had spurned and hated. Verse 7 adds, and I heard the altar saying, meaning another angel at the altar, I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Remember, God said on the basis of two or three witnesses. And so another, some say a someone. Some of your English Bibles add an angel because that's what's implied in the Greek New Testament. On the basis of two or three witnesses, God confirms everything. And so the second angel at the altar steps up to the plate, and he says the same thing. God is righteous, and he is holy. He is just. Now look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. What we have in this fourth bowl is real global warning, and it's caused by God himself. Now, scientists... "...inform us that there's a delicate balance between the distance of the earth and the sun. And under the sovereign hand of God, this angel is given power to scorch men with fire." During this plague, I don't know if God allows the sun to be turned up or if he allows solar flares to come through, but it is a fulfillment of what Malachi the prophet said would happen at the end of time in the fourth chapter of Malachi. He said, the earth will burn like a furnace. And so men have sunburns, they have sores, they are absolutely miserable. And this is a picture of a world that is getting ready to totally collapse. And in one sense, though, it is a severe mercy from God. Because this scorching, this burning, is just a precursor to what many are headed for in an eternity without Jesus. Look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given it to scorch men with fire. And so the temperatures are being raised, forests are probably burning. And what do you want to do when you're hot, when your skin's on fire? You want to put it underwater. You want to jump in a lake somewhere. You want to take a shower. But when you turn on the spigot, all that comes out is blood. You either take a blood bath or you just suffer. Verse 9, yet in spite of all this judgment, men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Though these people are able to connect the dots and see that these judgments are from the hand of God Almighty, you would think they would cry out and say, "'Oh, Lord, have mercy!' But no, they blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him mercy, uh, to receive His mercy. They blaspheme God's name. Now, the name of God all the way through Scripture is used to describe what God is like, what His person is. And so most of you have memorized John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even, that is, in other words, to those who believe in his name. When you believe in the name of Jesus, you are embracing him for all that he is. And these people, instead of believing in Messiah's name, they blaspheme the name of God Almighty. They did not repent. Now, verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Remember that term, the beast? It's John's favorite name for the Antichrist. He poured out his bowl on the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Now, if you remember back in chapter 13 and verse 2, the Antichrist is given as a gift from the devil himself, authority and power. We read there in the dragon, that's Satan, gave him, namely the Antichrist, his power and his throne and great authority. And up until now, for the most part, the beast, the Antichrist, has been sheltered from these direct attacks from God Almighty. Just like Pharaoh in ancient Egypt, now the Antichrist is going to be helpless against God Almighty. God will directly aim his wrath at his throne. And the Bible says that it became darkened one translation says it was plunged into darkness. I think the King James actually ca- captures the Greek Greek text most literally, and the King James it says it was full of darkness. And it is a Greek word, skatao, that means a blacky black. That is, it is so dark, there is no light whatsoever for a period of time. You could take a a match and light it, and you could feel the heat, but you would not be able to see the flame. It is absolute inky blackness, and no light can penetrate it. And again, in this fifth bowl, it is a reminder, once again, of hell, of the outer darkness that men will experience and live in throughout all of eternity, Jesus said, men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. And now God is giving them a taste of total darkness. Verse 11, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. This combination of sores and starvation from the lack of drinkable water and food from the oceans and the sun that is burning their skin... And the utter blackie, you would think they would call upon the Lord God to save them, but they don't. They blaspheme him. Man has reached the pinnacle of his hardness of heart. And hell is described in such terms. Jesus said in Matthew 25, Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, God wrote this not just for this future generation that may be pouring over the revelation, but he wrote this for us. This book has been read for 21 centuries of time. He is writing this for young men and young women, for adults here today, that we might warn people of the wrath that is going to come. Hell is a real place with real people, and it will last for a real eternity. And here they blaspheme the God of heaven. Verse 12 The sixth bowl comes. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the earth. Now, the source of water for the river Euphrates is Mount Ararat, and with the sun scorching the earth, there was a rapid melt, and it probably washed away every single bridge all the way across that great river. But there's also a rapid drying. The whole riverbed is dried so that the armies of the east can march towards Jerusalem. Now, who are these kings from the east? They're not named, but everything, all the directions in Scripture are in reference to Israel, so it would include such nations possibly like China or India or Japan and other eastern powers. And I saw verse 13, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Now remember under the old covenant, God distinguished his people among other things by the diet that they had. And then the unclean meats that God said a Jew could not eat included in them were such little creatures like frogs. God said they couldn't eat frogs. And of course, frogs were abominable to Jewish people, especially because of what they symbolized in terms of the demonic realm. They spent 400 years down in Egypt, and the frog god called Heka was worshipped. Remember those plagues that came upon Egypt? God didn't say, well, what should we do next? Well, let's give them uh, flies, or let's give them frogs. No, each of the plagues represented a different false god that the Egyptians worshipped. You like the frog? God, I'll give you some frogs. And God covered the land in frog. Well, here we don't have literal frogs. It's a simile here. We're told they are like frogs. And what do the frogs stand for? He tells us three unclean spirits. Now, when Jesus came here and his disciples ministered on earth, they expelled demons Here, Satan, through his ministry, he invites demons to come and to deceive people. And God is allowing the kings of the whole earth to be deceived. These demon spirits capture the hearts and the minds of the kings to march against Israel. The mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. One might say from the lying mouth of Satan... From the lying mouth of the Antichrist and from the lying mouth of the false prophet, three demons are at work, and they will amass a worldwide army towards this place, we'll read in a moment, called Armageddon. Now, these are signs, but these are not holy signs. These are demonic signs. These are what Paul calls lying signs, lying wonders. Remember, John loves the word sign. It's a specialized word for a miracle. Simeon, he uses it throughout his gospel and in the Revelation to describe a miracle with a message. Well, here is a miracle with a message, but it's from the pit of hell in order to deceive men. Verse 14 elaborates, For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now, some pastors have a field day. They like to be dramatic and colorful, and they try to tell you who the leaders are. The fact is we don't know who these leaders are, and we won't know until this day comes, and I'm not planning to be here for this day. But in either case, the kings of the world will gather together and they will march towards the war of that great day of God the Almighty. This unholy trinity that mimics the Holy Trinity, headed by Satan, his Antichrist, and the false prophet, Satan taking the place of the Father, Antichrist taking the place of the Son, and the false prophet who points men to the Antichrist taking the place of the Holy Spirit. They will be in full operation during this time. And of course, God tells us that there's coming a world campaign against Israel. Zechariah speaks of it, as does Revelation 19. Let me give you a sneak preview. We're still many sermons away from 1919. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's the battle of Armageddon, and it is these three demon-like spirits that will lead people to this place. Zechariah chapter 14, in describing what will happen when Jesus comes back from earth, says this in the 12th verse, now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouths. This description of flesh, of eyes, of tongues rotting is not a result of some nuclear disaster, again, as colorful preaching will make. This comes from the hand of God Almighty and all the plagues in the Revelation. None of them are man-made. They come directly from heaven itself. The Lord will strike, says the prophet Zechariah. This is indeed the war of the great day of God Almighty. Now remember, 21 judgments. And if you don't understand the architecture of the Revelation, it gets somewhat confusing. If you remember, as this next chart shows us, we began with the seven-sealed scroll there in Revelation chapter 6, seven seals that were opened one at a time, beginning with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, then all those people who are martyred by the millions, some cosmic changes. And then before the seventh seal, which contains seven trumpets, there's a pause in the narrative. And God will do this all the way through Revelation. It's not a pause in action. It's a pause in the narrative to either reflect or to preview on what is taking place in the world. And so if you remember, between the sixth and seventh seal there in Revelation 7, we saw 144,000 Jewish men witnessing and bringing the gospel to the whole world. That will happen during the final seven years. Jesus said, this gospel shall preach to all the nations, and then the end shall come. That's a fulfillment of something that will happen in this coming day, not that we shouldn't aim at it today. And so then in the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets, as this next chart reminds us. We've been studying those uh, six trumpets, and if you remember, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, once again, there's a break in the narrative to reflect and to look ahead. It tells us what has been going on and what is going on to come, that interlude there in chapters 10 through 14. And then if you remember, the seventh trumpet is blown and in the seven trumpets are contained the seven bowls of God's wrath. And that's where we are here in chapter 16. They were introduced to us in the 15th chapter, but then they are unfolded here in the 16th chapter. But once again, between the sixth bowl And the seventh bowl in verses 13 through 16, where we've been working, there is an interlude both to reflect and a preview of what God is going to do. And by the way, each of these interludes are introduced with the phrase, and I saw. It's a structural marker throughout the book. So picking up in verse 15 in the interlude where we were last time, where we left off, verse 15, Jesus said, this is new ground, behold... I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and then will not see his shame. Now, we know from the end of verse 14 that this utterance in verse 15 is a direct quote from God the Father himself, the same quotation that Christ, the Son of God, makes in the Olivet Discourse. John says that God is coming like a thief, something that is sudden, something that is unexpected, and people will be overtaken. Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 43, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into, Jesus is speaking of this same truth. He is in Matthew 24 and 25 unfolding the seven years of the great tribulation, and he reminds us that the end of the tribulation will come like a thief in the night. Now, most of the time, we hear hear the phrase the thief in the night, and we relate it only to the rapture, especially if you became a Christian in the 1970s. Because there was a popular movie that was released that year called A Thief in the Night. And it was of a young lady, the theme of the movie, who gets left behind and she misses the rapture and she's here for the Great Tribulation period. But actually, the concept of The Thief in the Night, while it is applied to the rapture, it is principally applied to this final seven years in history. The Apostle Paul says the day of the Lord, which if you remember, happens and commences after the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And so Jesus speaks of this time as a thief in the night. It can be applied to the rapture. And so at the church at Sardis, he describes it in that way. But it is typically in reference to the second coming. So in Matthew 24, 29, and this is important because think about this. It's a seven-year schematic. And so if the thief in the night metaphor that Jesus uses refers to the end of the seven years, it seems like you could pinpoint the day and the hour. And yet when Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour, he's not talking about the rapture, though that certainly would apply to the rapture. In the context, he's applying it to the second coming. Well, it seem like you could date the second coming no you cannot follow now Jesus said in Matthew 24:29 but immediately after the tribulation of those days plural the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken now, we don't know how many days thereafter. If you were with me in my final sermon in Daniel, then we saw this indiscriminate number of days that the prophet mentions at the end of time. We don't know if it's three days after the 70th week of Daniel is over or a week, but it's a short time because the Revelation says in the opening verse that when it happens, it comes fast, it comes quickly. He uses the word taxus. We got our word taxometer from it. And then the Son of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So no one knows the day or the hour. Certainly it applies to the rapture, as in the church of Sardis, Revelation chapter 3. But it also equally applies to the second coming. And so here in verse 15... In this beatitude, we like to say blessed. I don't know why every time we recite the beatitudes, we say blessed or blessed. blessed. That's old English. We'd say today blessed. So blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and then will not see his shame. So not knowing the exact time of Christ's visible return to the earth, and certainly not knowing the exact time of when the rapture takes place. In some ways, that's even a greater thief in the night because there's never been a single prophecy since the day of Pentecost that has needed to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. But all kinds of prophecies for the second coming, because that's a prophecy-driven event, we need to be ready. We need to have the right clothes on. And we've seen already in our study of clothes and the Revelation that John uses it in two ways, both of positional righteousness and of experiential righteousness. Jesus uses it, for instance, of positional righteousness in Matthew 22. He says, but when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, it's kind of like a picture of the marriage supper of the lamb, and Jesus is the king. And he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness in that place there will be no, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That parable describes salvation clothes. You need salvation clothes if you're going to go to heaven. If you're going to go to heaven, you must be as righteous as God himself. And there's no way you can earn or achieve that because we've already messed it up through our sin. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, That we might become, because we weren't before, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When you trust Jesus as Lord, he gives you, he imputes to your account the very righteousness that he has. He took your sin upon himself, and in exchange, he imputes you with his righteousness. That's the wedding clothes that you need. That's positional righteousness. And if you try to achieve it on your own, you'll never get it because Isaiah said, your righteous deeds, not your worst deeds, but your best deeds, your righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. But the Bible also in the Revelation speaks of practical righteousness. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. When the rapture comes, Jesus will come back and he wants you to be awake. And certainly those who are living during the time of the tribulation, which is what at hand, they need to be awake. Why? Because this will be the wickedest time in human history. The Spirit of God and his restraining influence, Second Thessalonians 2 says, will be removed off the earth. Hell will literally have a holiday. Sin will be widespread. You can be immoral with just about anyone you want to be. And those living during the tribulation will still have their fallen sin nature. And they have to decide whether or not they're going to walk with Christ and not be tempted by the lures of the evil one. Because sin will be widespread like the world has never, ever, ever seen in all of recorded history. And if you want to be unfaithful to your wife, you could be a thousand times over. Sin will reign in this day. Immorality like the world has never, ever, ever seen it before. And God wants us to be right, not only positionally. You can't be like Adam who tries to cover his shame with the work of his hands, but he needs to learn that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so God makes animal skins. He teaches a lesson pointing to the ultimate blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But you are called as a believer to walk in that righteousness. And God is clear that for the unbeliever, when he comes, God will be ashamed of them. He describes those who are unwilling to publicly, openly confess him before men. That's. Not something that saves you, but it's something that follows salvation. That's why Jesus said, if you won't confess me before men, I'll not confess you before my Father. And in one of those dialogues, he says, of such people, God will be ashamed. But God also speaks in the book of First John chapter 2 of believers who will shrink back in shame. They will be embarrassed when Jesus comes to catch us up in the air, as will, I'm sure, some tribulation saints. Verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon. Now, here's a picture of Harmageddon. If you go to Israel, we have stood on this place many, many, many times. It's an elevated hill of sorts. It's a a mountain. Har is the Hebrew word for mountain or hill. Harmageddon means the mountain or the hill of Armageddon in Greek it comes out Armageddon. Now Armageddon was a very well-known place to 1st century readers. And this is a place today that we often refer to as Tel Megiddo. Megiddo is this elevated city, ancient city and overlooks the Jezreel Valley. And people Christians often call this valley the Valley of Armageddon. There is actually no such valley that's Christianese, but it is the launching place, it's the setup place where the armies of the world will gather as they begin to march over a course of 200 miles up and down Israel, and they will ultimately attack the city of Jerusalem itself. We're going to study that. Today, we refer to this as a tell. What is a tell? A tell is not only a a hill or a mountain that God made, but a hill or a mountain that grew because it was man-made. So how did tells develop? Well, Initially, if you were going to settle someplace, two things were critical. You needed some height to build your city so that if the enemy came, you could protect yourself best if you were in an elevated ground. And secondly, you needed a water source. And of course, both those things are found here. And so you'd go ahead and you'd build on the city and, and you'd establish your homes and someone else with greed in their eyes would say, hey, that's a nice spot we'd like to have it. And so they would attack you, and they'd crumble it. They usually would burn a city. That's how you would attack it in ancient days. And after a while, the mound of dirt got a little bit higher, and the next civilization would come along, and they'd build on top of that mound of dirt. And and someone else would, green their eyes, would say, hmm, I like that city. And they attack it, and they burn it, and it crumbles. And another group comes along, and it gets higher and higher, and another city comes, and one after another, and the tail gets higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. In fact, if you go to Tal Megiddo today, they, they've taken a slice out of the side of it, and you can count the different levels of civilization. There's at least 26 different levels of civilizations that were on this tail. Now, if the picture I just showed you of Tal Megiddo was exactly how it looked in John's day because no one has ever lived on it, since the Apostle John's day. But for centuries, this was a critical place, and it is going to become the launching place where the armies of the world will come together to plan an attack against the nation of Israel there in the valley of Jezreel. Now, that's a sneak preview that John gives us of this place called Harmageddon. He's mentioned it briefly, but we're going to study it more fully when we come to chapters 19 and 20. Now, you say, when are we going to get started on the sermon? You haven't even hit Roman numeral one. Okay, I'm ready. And I'm actually almost done, so stay with me. Here, I want you to think about the sentence that will be rendered. Having looked at the first six bowls of wrath, And this interlude that follows. Now we come to the seventh bowl of wrath where the sentence will be rendered. I want you to see the sentence that will be rendered. We're told now in verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Now, it's interesting to know that the bowl of this the seventh angel is poured out upon the air, and it results in a catastrophe. Upon the air. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Some think, well, this is military aircraft. Again, let the Scriptures speak for themselves. None of these things are the kind of... Uh, Sensations that Hal Lindsey produced in his book, Late Great Planet Earth, to sell millions of copies. It's just sheer nonsense, some of the things that he came up with. But something happens in the realm of the air. I don't know. Maybe it's an asteroid. The text doesn't tell us, so I can't make something up. But I do know that it's not what Hal and others have said, because this plague, like all the plagues, are directly from God Himself in heaven. Maybe it's some of the lightning and thunder and this terrible storm that comes. I've only been through one terrible lightning storm that really, I mean, just frightened us. We just thought the house was going to fall apart. And it was on my son Jameson's fourth birthday, and we had turned off the lights, and the house was shaking, and the thunder was blasting, and Audrey carried out the cake, and then and 15 yards away, a tree, our tree there, literally was hit by lightning. Thousands of leaves were on flames. It came down like a birthday candle. And the tree was peeled like a banana. It was absolutely beautiful. They had it on the news the next day. Rick Forstner did. He had nothing to say up there. And when he did the weather, so he put it on the news. Anyway, oh, uh, Rick, you should get him to do the weather for you sometime. He was just a classic fake. I mean, he doesn't know anything about the weather, but he'd watch WCBI or one of these these other stations, and he'd go and he'd give the weather. It was beautiful how he did it. I loved it. Anyway, uh, this is a lightning storm, a thunderstorm that is unprecedented. So we don't know exactly what is happening in the air, but it's catastrophic. We're told a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. A loud voice, a mega voice, a great voice, mega. we reverse it and we say megaphone. A loud voice comes out of the temple, and God shouts, it is done. It's one word in Greek. From the cross with a great sense of joy, for the joy set before him, Jesus shouted, it is finished, concerning our redemption. Now God shouts, it is done, concerning the wrath of these 21 judgments before the final eternal wrath of God. And again, Jesus said, unless these days had been cut short, no one could have survived. There would be no one left to enter his millennial kingdom in terms of living subjects. Now, that's the sentence that will be rendered. Secondly, there's a system that will be ruined. There's a system that is going to be ruined. Look at verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake Such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth, so great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. By the way, there are many similarities between the first seal, the final seal, and the final trumpet, and the final bowl. In the seventh seal, we're told this in Revelation 8, then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake." Then when the seventh trumpet, again, intensity increasing, the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So there's a hailstorm that's added to it. Now in the seventh bowl, notice, verse 18, there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and it was so mighty. This, my friend, is the big one. This is the biggest one the world will ever see such as there had not been once since man came to be upon the earth. And this is exactly what the prophet Haggai predicted at the end of time would happen when he spoke of the Jewish people and the coming, the second coming of the Messiah. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. There would be no Richter scale that could measure this earthquake. Notice the consequences, verse 19. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now, John writes of the great city, and the thoughtful reader would immediately ask, what is the great city? What is he referring to? Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And he's already introduced us to this term in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8 of two witnesses who are in the street of the great city that is defined in that chapter as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And because I believe the Bible, I believe with all my heart the most important city on the face of the earth is Jerusalem. God describes it in the prophet Ezekiel as the center of the world. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I've set her at the center of the nations with lands around her. Now you may think Rome or Nashville or Tokyo or Paris or Moscow or Washington are more important, but they're not. Jerusalem and the mind and heart of God is the number one most important city on the face of the earth. That's why Psalm, the psalmist says in Psalm 48, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain." beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. Mount Zion is where the Temple Mount was, where the Solomonic Temple was built, where the Zerubbabel Temple was built, where Herod fixed it up even more, where the Romans tore it down, where the Tribulation Temple will be built. And it's there on Mount Zion that you will find a place called Golgotha that Jesus died on. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. Jesus ministered in the temple there in Jerusalem. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus was raised from the dead in Jerusalem. Jesus physically, literally ascended into heaven from Jerusalem, and the prophet says he will actually literally come back and plant his feet there in the city of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. The great city, the Bible says, verse 19, was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. So not only does Jerusalem have a great impact from this earthquake, so don't all the cities, Washington, Tokyo, all the cities, the nations, the world is shaken, and they'll be destroyed in a moment's time. Notice who with, along with Babylon the Great, was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. He once again reminds us of this place called Babylon. Babylon, next to Jerusalem, is the second most mentioned city in all of the Bible. And John, again, is previewing of something that is going to come. He's going to spend two chapters on Babylon, and there are two dimensions to Babylon. One is spiritual in nature, that's chapter 17. The other is economic in nature. So in this wicked city that we will look at and see where it is, There will be headquartered a one-world religion, and there will be a one-world economy from which the Antichrist will literally rule. Now, we're told in verse 20 that through this judgment, every island fled away and the mountains were not found. By the way, this is what Isaiah the prophet said. In Isaiah chapter 40, every valley will be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. There in Isaiah 40 that speaks of the coming ministry of John the Baptist, it gives us like many passages in the Old Testament, both comings of Messiah in a single paragraph of Scripture. Scripture. So when this earthquake comes, we're going to go back to a time that would mimic before the great flood. Not only will people live long extended periods of time through the millennium like they did in Noah's day, but the topography of the world will change after the great flood and the waters receded. The Bible said the mountains came up and the valleys sunk low. And God is going to level the topography in some way during the thousand-year reign of Messiah. And what is he going to do? He's going to bring Jerusalem, the apple of his eye, up to the top. We're told in Isaiah 2 and in Micah 4, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and people will stream to it. Jerusalem in the Bible is called the holy city. And because it's often associated, of course, with Israel, we call the land of Israel, the holy land. And God is going to raise Jerusalem up and we'll see what will happen during that thousand year reign when we come to chapter 20. And look at verse 21 further, we're told, and huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men. I remember one summer, I was 13 years old. It was in July. It was like Christmas in July. We had a hell storm that went for about 15 minutes, and it just came, and it came, and it came, and it came. And when you looked outside the window there in Worcester, Massachusetts, it was all white and beautiful. It was like we had had a snowstorm, and it went just as fast almost as it came as it melted. But I want to tell you, this hell storm is different than anything that has ever fallen upon the world. Here's a couple pictured here, a Missouri couple that had some baseball size hail that they showed off in this picture. The deadliest hail that ever came came in India where 92 people were killed. The heaviest hail that ever came was in a place, Bangladesh, where they measured a piece of hail at 2.25 pounds. This hail that's coming isn't the size of golf balls. It's the size of golf carts. It's 100 pounds. It's huge. Now, how do those who spiritualize the book of Revelation deal with this? How does the historical view of Revelation and the preterist view, and if you don't know what that means, go back and listen to the very first sermon, There are false approaches to the book of... They they don't know what to do with this. This is real, literal hail. God had a conversation with Job one day and God asked Job, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle? That's this day. God has storehouses of hail. And he's reserved it for this coming day and this final expression that we'll see will happen at the end of the campaign of Armageddon. Now there's a sentence, there's the system that will be ruined, finally there's the sinners that will be revealed. Beyond the sentence that will be rendered, beyond the system that will be ruined, there will be sinners who will be revealed." We're told here in the second half of verse 21, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Now, we've been reading through the revelation of men blaspheming God, but what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Man's unbelief comes first, and it is man's unbelief and rebellion and unwillingness to repent that brings the judgment of God. We read in chapter 16 and verse 9, they blasphemed the name of God, they did not repent. We read in chapter 16 and verse 11, they blasphemed the God of heaven, they did not repent. God never does anything by whim or by accident. Oh, let's give them some hail today. They blaspheme the living God. Now men curse his name, they use it in vain. Even Christians, oh my gee, all the time, they're just so flippant with the name of God. I don't think they mean it sometimes. I don't think they even know what they're doing. But here they are cursing God's name. And what was the penalty in Leviticus 24? When you blasphemed and you cursed the name of God, they stoned you to death. It's not by accident that God Almighty out of the heavens stoned the world with these hundred-pound hailstones, and he's reminding that the fullness of the expression of his law as seen in his wrath is going to come upon the earth. Now, this passage reminds me that often God in the spiritual realm will announce what he is going to do in the physical realm, just study the earthquakes in the Bible They're God's alarm clocks to get man's attention. When God gave the Ten Commandments, the Bible says there was a great earthquake. When Jesus died on the cross and he paid for our sin, the Bible says there was a great earthquake. When he was raised from the dead, the Scripture says there was a great earthquake to reveal the empty tomb. And on this occasion, the biggest earthquake the world has ever seen that is going to announce the second coming of Jesus from heaven. Now you still say, well, there's two chapters, 17 and 18, and the second coming doesn't happen until 19. Cause God is going to show us what has been going on in the hearts of man, where they would come to this point where they literally are able to see this is God's hand, and yet they blaspheme the one who created and made them. God is in control. He rules in heaven above. He is a God of love, but He is a God of wrath. Let me make three applications as I close our time off. Number one, our God is a God whose patience towards you will end. There is coming a day when God's patience towards you will end. Now, we've already learned that those earth dwellers, as they're called, heard the gospel prior to the rapture, but they did not believe. And if you will not believe in this time, you will not be able to believe in this coming time. We've already studied that. And if you want to hear a whole sermon on it, listen to 2 Thessalonians 2. Because they would not believe, as Jesus said, they could not believe. Because they would not receive the love of the truth, Paul says, so as to be saved. Therefore, God sent upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. And those who refuse him in this day, you will march against him in that coming day. He is the light of the world, but men so often love the darkness rather than the light. They want a form of Christianity to soothe a guilty conscience, but they don't want the real thing. And because they do not repent, they ultimately blaspheme. Blaspheme. And they will be represented by the armies of the world that will go against Israel. God's patience will someday end towards you. His Spirit will not always strive with you. You don't know that you have another hour to live or another day or another week or that Jesus couldn't come back tonight. You need to be ready. Secondly, our God is a God of great wrath our God is a God of great wrath. Over and over again in the Greek New Testament, this little word mega, translated great, appears. Verse 1, the sound of a mega voice. Verse 9, we learned of mega heat. Verse 12, of a mega river that will become a trap. And in verse 14, we studied the great, the mega day of God as seen in the battle of Armageddon. And we just read of the mega earthquake, and of the mega city, and of a plague of mega hailstones, this is the great God of wrath. No one likes an unjust judge. No one likes a judge who lets a guilty murderer go scot-free. Why do you not like that kind of judge? Because you're made in the image of God. And His image is reflected in the law that He wrote into your heart. And so you should know inwardly that God is not just loving. He is holy. He is just. Third and finally, I'm reminded our God is a God of great grace. He's a God of great grace. We just studied this morning in verse 15 that Jesus is coming and so his counsel to you is to be ready for the thief. We do not know when he will come. Jesus could come today in the rapture and for many it would be too late. Listen, if you knew the thief were coming tonight, you'd be ready, but you don't. He is coming like a thief and if you have rejected God's substitute who shed his innocent blood blood as a payment for your sin so that you could escape the wrath of God, then you will not meet God in mercy, you will meet Him in wrath. Listen, most of you know Him here this morning. And God doesn't want you to get your garments dirty. And if you're living a compromised life, then you need to get it right today. Things are changing so fast in this nation and in this world. And if you don't see it, you're just absolutely blind. But you see, many people don't see it. They think what is happening in our nation is good. But it is evil beyond evil. And many of God's people are just anesthetized by it because their clothes are dirty and the Spirit cannot fill them. If your clothes are dirty, get them clean today. Bring them back under the blood of Christ. But if you've never been given salvation's garments, you can receive them today if you will call upon Jesus in faith. I don't care if you're in Grays or Bluffton or here, or Graniteville, or live streaming, if you do not know that you know that you know that salvation is yours, you need to come in faith. You need to believe what God promised, that because he did what he did in Christ, dying, bleeding, and being raised, he can promise you what he promises. If you will call on his name today, he will receive you and give you the gift of eternal life. And the question is, will you believe that? Or will you call God a liar? Now, Holy Father, I thank you that in your mercy, you have prepared me for heaven, not by my merit, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I pray today for someone here who's really unsure of their salvation. Father, help them to see that they can do nothing to earn it or merit it. That your son shouted from the cross, it was paid in full. Your word says that you cannot lie. Your Bible says it is impossible for you to lie. Moses wrote that you are not like a man that you would ever lie. Thank you for your promise that Christ receives sinful men, that whosoever will may come. That whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. I pray for those who have a false assurance, who have never repented, who have never changed their mind and called it evil, such that they would want you to change it and make them new. You warn that unless someone repents, he will perish. Help someone today to see that they need to bring their sin to the cross That Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, might forgive them and give them a new life. Thank you that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. His old life has passed away and a new life has started. For those of us, Father, who have met you, help us to see the improprieties and wickedness all around us even in so many of our government leaders who are calling good evil and evil good. May we not be blinded. May we see the day that we are living in, the days that you spoke of, the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And may we even this week warn at least one person and share with someone of the incredible new life they can have in Jesus Christ. Give someone today, Father, the courage here on one of our campuses to take a stance for Jesus, some to confess him publicly, some to be baptized as a symbol, and others who know you, who love you, who need a church home, put it in their hearts today to come and to serve with us, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation this morning. And I want to invite somebody of you here today to come and identify with Jesus. Maybe you've met him, but you've never confessed him publicly. You've never been baptized since you've been saved. Maybe you're a believer, but you need a New Testament Bible-believing church. We welcome you wherever you are today. I'm going to ask that you leave your seat and come to this front row. And your coming will be telling me that you have a decision to make. Matt, would you lead us? We're going to sing all the verses of this great hymn. But if you have a decision to make, then step out now and you come.